Okay, um, what we're going to start with is um, an issue that I think is not talked about too much in the church, and it is probably less understood than it is talked about. And that is a lot of the bioethical issues that we face today in, um, in the church. And we know that technology has kind of uh, outpaced a lot of believers' ability to understand what's right about it and what's wrong about it. And so we're going to talk about um, euthanasia today. This is a, a big topic that is often um, debated in churches. Uh, I have been in churches where, to my surprise, there have been very divergent views on how this is to be looked at. And if we believe that the Bible is truly the final authority for faith and life, then we have to believe that God doesn't leave us hanging on some of these issues. But what makes it challenging is these are not issues that Charles Spurgeon faced or, you know, uh, George Whitfield or John Calvin. If you would have asked him about euthanasia, um, he probably would have known what that is. But counseling and bioethics, that probably would not be a word that he'd be familiar with. So um, I want to talk a little bit about this. And the way that I want to approach this is kind of to give it a definition and then Eventually, after we set the groundwork for this, we want to get into a biblical approach on this. And I always like a lot of feedback, so as you know with me, if you have a question on anything, uh, you can stop me at any time and um, feel free to ask uh, any questions or make comments. Because this is not, you know, I don't want this just to be a lecture. I don't want this to be just me talking to you. And this is kind of like a, an extended flock group, only with another subject so that we can get some interaction here, all right? So you should have notes, and um, I tried not to make this too intensive with the notes, but we'll uh, go through this. So let's start, first of all, what, asking the question, what is euthanasia? And notice in your notes that <clears throat> euthanasia is defined as mercy killing, the deliberate ending of a person's life with the intent of reducing that person's suffering and the more common term is right to die, which is really the right to be killed. And in order for such a right to exist, our society would need to agree to a duty to provide this service. In other words, there has to be something associated with it that way. Now, by way of introduction, I want to share again that what we're really talking about here is a war of ideologies. And <coughs> euthanasia, in every sense, is a war of ideologies. Um, and the first casualty of this is often a definition of terms, um, and less direct and less offensive terms are often used to describe euthanasia. And isn't it true that we often see this, a lethal injection for an ill person is called aid in dying, uh, or shortening the dying process. Um, denying someone legal permission to undergo suicide becomes cruelly prolonging the suffering and suffering of the dying person. In other words, there are those in, in even Christian circles who would think that if you allow any kind of suffering at all, you must be the most cruel person in the world. And suffering today has become um, just synonymous with cruelty. And, and I want to suggest that biblically, God uses suffering to a great end. And again, none of us would wish that, and I don't say that glibly, and I'm certainly not saying that we should just look at suffering in a casual way and, and not care about people that are suffering. But um, again, when people suffer, it's often because they feel that um, 
we can do something about it or end a life if we need to and not have them go on. The other common term, and I've probably heard this more than any, is, is euthanasia is death with dignity. And you've probably heard that. That's a very soft, toned-down uh, rhetorical statement that um, is kind of supposed to add dignity to this. And it's a euphemism notice for pro- avoiding a prolonged and poor quality of life where someone might be dependent upon medication. And this is the um, ideology that really has opened up a firestorm of uh, debate. So um, we will uh, look at this a little bit. And um, I will go ahead and change the slides when there's actually um, something that I need to have you write down. Um, Let's see, am I getting ahead of myself here? it's not the slide that I, I think we got this out of order. It was right. Oh, was it right? Yeah. Oh, wait, I had it right. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm right. Okay, sorry. Okay, so it does force us to deal with some questions. And this is where, again, it can get dicey for the believer. Uh, for example, does, someone hatred, does someone's hatred or dependence upon others constitute adequate justification for ending his or her life. So we see two things. There are times when, um, we're going to see this in some of the history of euthanasia, there are times when there is the lesser um, revolting kind of decision where it's like, look, you know, there's suffering and, and someone else is taking it upon themselves to say this person's life should be over. Um, And then there's the case where there is, are those who are offended by the fact that it puts unnecessary strain or stress on them, and so they decide that life needs to be ended. And we see this oftentimes in hospitals when people are on ventilators or when there is uh, home care, and and they literally make the decision that life needs to be terminated. So, So does that constitute justification for that? Secondly, does illness or handicap reduce true dignity? That's an interesting question. You would think that that would be easily answered, but it's not. Um, There are many who think there are severe handicaps or illnesses that really negate any kind of dignity to life at all, and so that life should be terminated. Thirdly, does the availability of euthanasia confer dignity upon one's existence? Um, In other words, um, you have the right over your own life. And and I look at this in a a parallel vein to how we look at abortion, right? What do those who are pro-abortion say? It's my body. I have a right to do what I want. You can't tell me what to do with my body. And therefore, butt out. And the same mentality often strikes a chord in this idea of euthanasia that, you know, um, it's my body, it's my right. Uh, I have control over what I want to do, so I'm going to decide when I want to end my life. Fourthly, is euthanasia or mercy killing any different than letting nature take its course, as we often say? Now, that's an interesting question. You know, we often hear, well, we just let nature take its course. And I want to suggest that they're very different. Um, But why and how are they different? So we'll talk about that a little bit. And then, a real dicey question, if, if physician-assisted suicide becomes law, where will the lines be drawn? You know, this is often a very difficult thing. If, if this becomes a law, then wh- what, where do you set the parameters? How do you set parameters on something like this? Uh, what constitutes when such a practice should be started or stopped? 
I mean, you know, you have all kinds of, it's not just an issue, and what I'm trying to get at here is that it's not just an issue of should we do it or not. It's not even an issue, as hard as it is, of whether it becomes law or not, but how does that, how is that law defined? You know, how is that law defined? So, we asked this question, is euthanasia new? And... Um, Euthanasia, first of all, is not new. It's been debated for centuries. And notice that the Greeks carried on very forceful arguments on the subject. And if you uh, were even to look into church history, you will see that some of the founding fathers really dealt with this. Now, they didn't deal with the bioethic end of it. But let's face it, there, man in every age has learned how to take life, right? So this is not a new issue in the sense of what they defined it. They wouldn't call it euthanasia, but it's the same issue. Um, uh, Plato approved it in cases of terminal illness. He dealt with it. And we see that as Christianity spread under Constantine in 330 AD, that the influence of euthanasia was suppressed. And remember what Constantine did back in that century. If you know anything about church history, he tried to propagate the Christian religion through the Crusades, through force, through, through edict. Uh, that you're going to be Christian and we're going to turn the land into a Christian land. And, and I'm not saying that what he did was right, but euthanasia definitely was suppressed at that time. Um, another thing is that the spread and acceptance of the Hippocratic Oath dealt a further blow to euthanasia um, because of the fact that the oath stated that I shall... Uh, let's see, it states, I will neither give a deadly drug to anyone if asked for it, nor will I make a suggestion to that effect. Now, that's not in your notes, so that's why I'm not changing it. So you don't have to worry if I, and if I get behind, I'll go back. <laughs> um, I just want to give you some of the history of this so you have a little bit of an idea. In 1935, the Euthanasia Society of England was formed to promote painless death for patients with incurable diseases. And this is where, in, in a sense, in the modern era, um, euthanasia really took hold, that people began to talk, doctors began to talk, okay, if someone's got an incurable disease, um, we want them to have a painless death. And so uh, with the administration of drugs and other treatments, this idea of just terminating a life also got thrown into the mix. And a few years later, the Euthanasia Society of America was formed, and they had the very same goals, the very same intentions. Some of you may have heard the name Derek Humphrey. Um, he founded an organization called the Hemlock Society. Have any of you ever heard of that, the Hemlock Society? Um, and that was to promote euthanasia again in our country. And his book, The Final Exit, The Practicalities of Self-Deliverance, and assisted suicide for the dying became a bestseller. That literally became a bestseller. I mean, that's kind of scary, you know. That, uh, that that's exactly how it how it happened. But it became a bestseller, and um, that's where it started to catch on in the general public. And then some of you in recent years may remember the name Jack Kevorkian. Remember when he was in the news? Like every other day, it was Jack Kevorkian. Um, who was probably one of the most <laughs> instrumental men in helping people commit suicide. He wrote a book called Prescription Medicide, The Goodness of Planned Death. That, again, was a best-selling book in which he promoted euthanasia. 
And he patented a suicide machine, which he called the Mercitron, which is, you know, it's kind of a Star Wars uh, name, but that's, that's, that's the true story. He called it the Mercitron, and of course, Jack Kevorkian um, was contested, and uh, I don't know whatever happened to him. I think he passed away. Didn't he die? I think Jack Kevorkian did die. Yes, I think so. I think he did time, too. I think he was put in jail. I never followed up totally, but I think he was... What's that? I don't know. That's a good question. I don't think so. I think he was a guy who decided he was going to let nature take its... Yeah, like, did he use the Mercitron on himself? You know, I, I really don't know. Okay, so we have to ask, then, why is it that euthanasia is being promoted in this day and age? And this is where we kind of turn the corner, and we want to combine not just this idea and discussion on euthanasia, but also the bioethical end of it, okay? Because bioethics is a, is a big issue. And uh, I could talk about all kinds of subjects. The two that we're going to limit ourselves to to this class, and we'll probably take two lessons on this one, will be euthanasia and then uh, stem cell research. So those are two areas in bioethics. So we're really talking about euthanasia under the umbrella of bioethics. And that's important for us to know because one of the primary reasons that people are for euthanasia is because they fear technology. I mean, how many times have we heard this? Look, I don't want to be put on a ventilator. I don't want to be kept alive like a, a vegetable for 10 years and laying in a hospital. I mean, we hear that. And, you know, is there merit to that? Well, yeah. You know, people fear technology because why is that? We can keep a person alive a lot longer today than we could even 30, 40 years ago. Um, and, you know, with artificial hearts. We know that after brain death has occurred, an, an artificial heart can go on beating indefinitely. I mean, the heart can keep beating. So, you know, again, the fear is, does this constitute life? And, and here again, you see that. Uh, people fear that through being kept alive by machines with no hope of recovery, um, that they will be just kind of in a vegetative state, um, and they want to be able to have the choice of re refusing these life-prolonging uh, measures. And uh, notice also uh, that people fear the, the pain of the dying process. I mean, a lot of people are afraid of the pain of death, that they would say, look, you know, just take me out in the backyard and shoot me. Put me out of my misery. I, I don't want to go through the pain. And again, is there is there an understanding of why people would feel that way? Well, yeah, there is. I mean, we don't want to be cruel about this. Uh, we wouldn't wish pain on anyone. Um, and even though we have technology to manage severe pain, listen to what Dr. Paul Cundiff, who was a practicing oncologist, says. He says this, and I quote, he says, it is a disgrace that the majority of our healthcare providers lack the knowledge and the skills to treat pain and other symptoms of terminal disease properly. The absence of palliative care training for medical professionals results in suboptimal care for almost all terminally ill patients and elicits the wish to hasten their own deaths in a few. And I think he's right. You know, this is written from an oncologist. Certainly they see this all the time. And, um, and people fear pain. You know, and they know that with the life-saving um, technology available, that they're worried that that's just going to prolong the agony. 
And, and again, we hear this all the time when people want to make decisions about, like, say someone has cancer, should I take chemo, should I not take chemo? You know, if, if the chemo, you know, what, what's that going to mean? Um, and a lot of times, the, what, what's behind a decision like that? What, what makes a person decide to take it or not take it? Let's hear from you guys. What do you think? Thing of having to go through the chemo itself, and then it not being a guarantee that it's actually going to fix things. Okay, yeah. So some people will just choose to forego it and then take their chances naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There's also cost. Yeah, sure. Those are two good reasons. Yeah, cost. the cost of it. Also, I hear it affects people like how they normally act, and they want to be kept the same. They want people to remember them as they were, not as. Yeah, that's true. Sure. Yeah, they don't want to have relatives and loved ones watch them wither away, so to speak. Yeah, and, and you know, we know that pretty much the chemo is a very, um, um, you know, it's a very difficult thing on the body. It, it, it can make you very sick and nauseous, and, you know, so there's a lot of suffering that's associated with the treatment itself. So I think all your reasons are probably frontline reasons, you know, why people would maybe choose not to do that. Um, and by the way, you know, I, we're going to talk about, is that wrong? to choose not to do that, you know, and I'll suggest that it isn't wrong, mm-hmm. not at all, but uh, we have to define why, and we want to understand, so that if we're talking to people that are in difficult situations, we have an understanding of these very difficult issues, and that we can speak to them through scripture, and for those of you that may have come in late, what I'm trying to do here is to set the groundwork for this issue, this bioethical issue, And then probably next week, Lord willing, or maybe even a little bit this week, we're going to get into the biblical understanding of this, and we're going to be able to talk about how would we counsel somebody that comes and is dealing with this issue. You know, I have, yes? I just, the the point of people refusing um, or accepting um, chemo is often a family decision. They beg their loved one, please, for us, try, even though the person isn't, willing. And I also think that hospice is that bridge between the, mm-hmm. the, the, the primary care, the oncologist, and the family. And I think that's such an important yeah. Yeah. piece sure. Absolutely. to help make those decisions. I do too. As well as our biblical counseling. Yeah, I do too. I mean, there are some agencies out there that are very, very helpful. And thank you for bringing that up, Nancy. And we'll, we'll talk about that. You know, that there, there are they're tough decisions. You know, this is a very difficult issue. You know, it, it, it's not a cut and dry kind of thing where, you know, it's a cookie cutter approach and we can just stamp out, you know, a, an objective answer for every person. And it's almost an issue that you have to look at individually. But there are biblical principles that hold true across the board. And that's what we want to be able to define and understand so that we're not wishy-washy on what should we do in this or that. Okay, so let's uh, then go on and talk about some current medical practices. Um, The natural death that occurs with the withdrawal of treatment is not euthanasia. In other words, people are going to die. Amen? Do we agree with that? Uh, You know, given enough time, unless the Lord returns, we are going to die. Now, I'm hoping to be like Enoch and just, you know, just walk with the Lord, just go right from one state to another. But with this old bot, I'm starting to think that's not going to (laughs) happen. So we want to be careful here and understand, okay, that natural death um, that occurs with the withdrawal of treatment is not euthanasia. So, and we've kind of just said this, you know, if a family decides, let's say through hospice or through their family, that look, I don't want to take chemo, and I'm going to just, you know, 
not take it. That's not euthanasia, all right? Um, and I think there's a, an important distinction to be made here. Just as natural death should not be confused with euthanasia, neither should we equate euthanasia with palliative care. Palliative care is care directed at lessening the severity of terminal illness without the potential of curing it, okay? So are we right to lessen the severity of a terminal illness? Absolutely. You know, I think that goes along with what the Hippocratic Oath would tell us to do. Anything we can do to alleviate suffering. You know, how many times in the Bible did we see Jesus heal? I mean, Jesus wasn't against medicine. You know, he wasn't against doctors. Uh, he did say, physician, heal thyself first. You know, in other words, you know, that you should pay attention to your own um, responsibility. But there is nothing wrong with lessening the severity of a terminal illness. And we should try to do that if we can, even when we know that there's no, no potential for curing it. Um, and, you know, thank goodness we are living in a day and age where we have medicines and drugs that they didn't know about. You know, I think back to the Civil War, and I think back, what a hideous time. You know, they didn't know anything about germs. And that wasn't all that long ago, if you think about it. I mean, if you ever watch a surgeon in the Civil War, they would be covered in blood from head to toe. And you'd have, like, ten guys laying on tables, and he would go from one body to the next body, no washing, no, they just... You know, and of course, a lot of people, and, and with the amputations, no anesthetic, you, you bite on a block of wood, and it, you, you hope you don't die from shock. Or maybe yeah, a good slug of whiskey or something. But you know, when you think of those days, and they knew nothing, and a lot of people just died of guys died of infection because they didn't know anything about sterile treatment, and you know, the doctor would just go from you know just just one person to another, and so um, we see that. Um, you know, there is, uh, we've come a long way, and I'm thankful that we have the medications we do today, especially when I go to the dentist, you know. <laughs> I always tell them to load me up with as much Novocaine. Actually, if you put me out, I take sodium pentothal for everything. You're cutting my toenails, give me sodium pentothal, you know. <laughs> I, 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 I love sodium pentothal, you know. I, I really, if I have to have a procedure where they're going to knock me out, I actually look forward to that. I'm weird. It's just like Gail says, but you're going in for a procedure. I said, yeah, but I get sodium pentothal. It's, it's great. I know. That might be taking it a little too far, but anyway. But notice that natural death, which results from illness or degenerative processes, is the opposite of euthanasia. Even when someone requests that life not be prolonged, death results from the underlying illness, not from the withdrawal of care itself. And I think that's the difference. Yes? The death, the bottom, the, these statements seem to suggest that uh, a lack of action is not, like, like that last statement, I think a DNR, that, that sounds, that's like, right, yeah. sounds like a do not resuscitate. Right, right. So you're, I, I think what you're saying right. is <coughs> right. a do not resuscitate order would not necessarily be euthanasia. Right, and I would consider that not to be euthanasia. Right. And a lot of people have DNRs. My mother has it, um, you know, and, um, you know, there, there are, again, you know, people that want to just trust the Lord and, and say, look, if, if that's what happens, then I don't want any heroic life-saving measures. But that's a lot different than withholding care to purposely take it into your own hands to, to see a patient die. So in other words, if, if I said, well, I want to be resuscitated, and somebody said, well, he's not worth a hoot, so 
if I don't care what he says, I'm not going to resuscitate him. That would be euthanasia. Do you think that uh, when a patient decides not to eat or drink, and let's say hospice allows it, and the patient right. disagrees, is that yeah. how would you consider? Yeah, that's a tough issue, and. You know, we're going to talk about that when we get into a biblical response. But, that, but see, that's where it gets sticky. Because what if grandma's laying there? See, that happened with my father-in-law, who passed away almost a year ago. He died last year, January 3rd. We were up there, and he came home. And I was in the room. I did the night duty with him, so I slept in the living room. He was in a hospice bed in the living room, and I slept on the couch with him. And one night, it was like 2 in the morning, he goes, Jack, Jack, are you there? And I said, yeah, Dad, I'm here. And he, he came over, he asked me to come over, and I came over to his bed, and he said, uh, yeah, Dad, remember, he was an ex-Marine, so he's kind of, so he's very straightforward. So he said, uh, i got to ask you something. <clears throat> he says, am I just here to die? Am I going to die? And I said, yeah, Dad, you are. And he said, okay. He said, don't want anything. Don't give me anything. Don't, you know. And my mother-in-law, you know, obviously wanted to give him stuff and nourishment and things like that. And, and he was very adamant that, you know, when she tried to give it to him, he wouldn't take it. And, you know, finally we didn't give him anything, you know. But those are hard, those are hard issues. But what do you do? I mean, that, you know, that worked out more kind of amiably, but that's not always the case. And I've seen families where this becomes a real battle zone, you know. So let's uh, move on and talk, talk about the practice of voluntary active euthanasia. Okay? Now the, distinctives of, the distinctiveness of euthanasia needs to be stressed. <clears throat> and it uh, needs to be stressed this way, that there's a difference between mercy killing and what could be called mercy dying. All right? So taking a human life is not the same as allowing nature to take its course by allowing a terminal patient to die. The former is immoral and perhaps even criminal, while the latter is not. And you'll know it. notice that um, modern medicine has really blurred the lines between hastening death and allowing nature to take its course, and it really has in medicine today. I am thoroughly convinced, and maybe some of you that are in the medical field or maybe have a little more uh, exposure to it, but I'm thoroughly convinced that Euthanasia goes on in our hospitals a lot more than what we may know, or doctors' offices, or whatever. Um, you know, obviously that it's <clears throat> you know illegal, but um, but you know this has really been a it's becoming a very accepted and embraced practice in America, just like abortion, you know. Um, if you would have told me years ago that people would have been okay with this, you know, and maybe my age gives me away here, uh, I would have, I, the, the shot was, you know, it was a shocking thought that anybody would think that. The same with uh, homosexuality and what we see today, and, you know, society has taken a lot of perverse and sinful turns, and um, this is just one of them. Is it legal? Some states? I don't think so. It, Although in legal in, in Oregon, the, it is legal in several states. I think Oregon is one of them. Yeah. <laughs> I think it might be. I know for Oregon for sure. I didn't know California, but it is legal in some states. They they have legalized this. Right. Yet. 
you know, but you know how that goes. Well, people are also a little more okay with that. Yeah. So that's why it seems to be spreading. Yeah. And again, society, you know, is going to embrace this, uh, you know, because they would look at this as being something that's good. So here are some of the issues that we're facing here. And again, we have to kind of struggle with the issues so that when we counsel someone, we have an understanding of what we're talking about here. Um, if you're going to tell somebody how to build a house without a blueprint, you're probably not going to get too far. You know? But when we have a blueprint for this, we can understand the counseling better. So let's look at some of these issues. First of all, certain analgesics can ease pain, but they can also shorten a patient's life by affecting respiration. Um, I was just watching, I think it was last night or the night before, they have a show on called The Last Hours Of, it's like autopsies of famous, you know, and, and having worked in a funeral home for many years, I know this sounds a little gross, but I, I kind of, I'm always interested in these kinds of things, and they had a, uh, this one was on The Last Hours of Joan Rivers. We all know Joan Rivers, right? And uh, Joan Rivers um, went in for what was supposed to be a routine endoscopy, a routine, um, you know, where they put the tube down your throat and look in your stomach or your vocal cords or whatever. And, um, and so um, what happened was is that, you know, they put her under, but they, she was on a, a beta blocker uh, for her heart. Now, I'm not a doctor here, so if I get this wrong, you know, I think I have it right, but um, the, the anesthesiologist gave isopropyl or some kind of drug, you know, to kind of sedate her, um, which the fear of that is, is that it can react with the respiration of a person. And what happened was, during the procedure, her oxygen levels dropped from like 98% down to 50%. And from what I understood from the show, anytime your oxygen gets lower than like 95%, that's dangerous. When it gets down to 50, it's really dangerous. And uh, long story short, what happened was she just stopped breathing. Her heart stopped, and they thought that the medication that they gave her literally reacted and closed her vocal cords so she couldn't get oxygen because they ambu bagged her and they couldn't get air into her lungs. And they finally intubated her, but by the time they intubated her and rushed her to the hospital, because this was being done in an office, she was in a coma and never recovered, you know, never came out of, never came out of it, but um, passed away. So the point of it is, is that there are, there are medications that can really mess up the body's system. Um, and we hear at times of people dying from wrong medications. I mean, now I know, I'm not saying that's a, always euthanasia. That could just be medical malpractice or error or whatever. Um, Notice also the issue we brought up a minute ago that artificial hearts continue to beat even after a patient has died and must be turned off by a doctor. Um, an artificial heart will just go on indefinitely. It'll circulate blood, it'll keep organs in a sense functioning, but with no brain activity whatsoever. And um, so that's another issue that we wrestle with. Notice also that active euthanasia eliminates the possibility for recovery. Um, now, this is, a, this is an issue that is often neglected by those who want to promote euthanasia, um, terminating a life being, uh, or eliminating all possibility for recovering. Um, 
because we know that people have recovered miraculously from many different illnesses with no rhyme or reason to it. And when you obviously take a life, you um, take away any possibility that that person could recover. Um, Case in point, years ago, uh, when Gail and I lived in Illinois, attended a church called the Woodstock Bible Church, and we had a woman in our church who had terminal brain cancer. And she came in, and I remember sitting in church, and she came in one Sunday, and her head was just totally wrecked, you know, just with bandages, and her husband was helping her to walk. She could hardly stand up, and I thought, wow, what a blessing she would even come to church. And I thought she was going to pass out before she got to the pew. And, you know, she was really, really ill and, um, and uh, sat there and um, her husband and I talked for a moment and he said, this is probably going to be the last time she'll be in church, but she really wanted to be here today and, you know, it was very emotional. And when she left, we didn't see her for like two months, you know, and, and I didn't really call. I, I thought, well, maybe she's probably passed away. And like two and a half months later, she came into church bouncing in sitting down, just like there was nothing wrong, and I was in shock. And she went, they did x-rays, and the doctor said, he thought he had the wrong x-rays. He was mad at the lab. He said, you're sending me the wrong x-rays. And they said, no, this is, it wasn't a trace of the cancer. It was gone. Totally gone. And she came in, she was, and she said, it's a miracle. You know, and, you know, miracles happen. I'm telling you, I see this all the time in ministry. People that you wouldn't think, now, somebody might have said, well, she's going to die anyway. Look at the pain she's in. You know, we might as well just go ahead and let's end her life. I mean, why prolong this suffering? And you know what? There's a life that would have been lost. And that's the problem when we play God. You know, so, now I'm not saying that, you know, that obviously is the exception to the rule and doesn't happen. I'm not saying that that's um, always the case. But you talk to any doctor that's been in medicine for any amount of time, I guarantee you they'll tell you they've seen miracles. I guarantee it. If they've been in medicine long enough, they've seen people live that just weren't supposed to. And sometimes, you know, we have to just look to our Heavenly Father and say, praise the Lord, you know? And they still never figured out why. It just was gone, you know? So um, people don't often talk about that in this argument, you know, and that's a, a very important part of it. Um, there's also a concern that a voluntary euthanasia is allowed. Patient decisions might not always be freely made. The possibility of coercion is always present. And this, unfortunately, is becoming more prevalent where others are deciding whether you live or die. You know, that is really, really scary. Um, Richard Lamb, former governor of Colorado, said elderly, terminally ill patients have a duty to die and get out of the way. This is the governor of, California, of, of Colorado saying this. Are you hearing this? A duty, they have a duty to die and get out of the way. That's the mentality out there. Yes? And I would suggest that that sort of viewpoint is, might be a fourth reason why euthanasia is being promoted. They, it's, it, it's very selfish uh, yeah. from, for not, sure. not from the patient's perspective, but from everybody else. It's yeah. drain on our system. Yep. As a family member, uh, you don't want to say it, but yep. like, hey, I'm having to take care of you and you're mm-hmm. costing me money. Yeah. Like those selfish desires yeah. are there. And I I saw that that kind of coercion yeah. from from the medical staff. Uh that we're trying to counsel my stepfather wow. and I through 
palliative care of my mom. And it, it was a very subtle undertone, mm -hmm. but it was, it, was, it was there. It was like, you really should just let her go and make sure, and, yeah. and that way it's not an inconvenience to you. Yeah. And, oh, by the way, it'll get her out of our system so that there, she's out of our way as well. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's certainly there. Oh, it is, uh, Jeremy. Thanks for that uh, testimony, too, because, uh, you know, people ha are, are very self-centered today, very selfish, and, you know, in our fast-paced American culture, that we just, that's, it's a hassle. <clears throat> it's amazing. I get people asking me all the time, why did you take your mother? You know, like, what's, like, what's wrong with you? Um, and Gail and I had decided when we first got married that if our parents ever needed care, we were going to do everything we could to take care of them. Now, I'm not saying that's a decision everybody should make. And it's not like hooray for me. I mean, I, that's not the point. But um, we, we see today, it's just, you know, that's, that's a hassle. So we need to, you know, and it's difficult. I mean, you know, it is. It's, it's, it causes sacrifice. But this is where we cross the line. Um, and to add to what Jeremy said, doctors, nurses, various health care providers, insurance companies, let's not keep them out of the mix. Family and friends and others could exert pressure on those who are terminally ill to look, end your life. I mean, I wonder how many government agencies, hospitals, insurance companies, family members say, look, get it over with. When, you, when this Obamacare was being formulated, they, they talked about the death squad, yes. the old people, and whether, whether it's true or not, whoever read that 15,000 page document, Yes, right. That was a big issue. <coughs> yes. Old people were going to be just kind of like ushered yeah. That's right. Yeah. And, and you know, given the natural course of things, I could see, you know, just that taking hold. You know, just, um, you know, you're, we're going to let you live to a certain age and that's it. When you become a drain on the system, when you become what we consider not useful. I wonder what that does to the, the elderly. I mean, I'm always in the group, but, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, the 80-year-olds and 90-year-olds who say, yeah. you know, I'm a burden to you, or yeah. if, they, if you hear that, you, you begin to, to, to think that maybe you are mm -hmm. a, a yeah. weight or a burden yeah. to your family, and yeah. I mean, it makes sense. It does. It does. No, it is, and, it, you know, and here again, and you can understand how people in this culture without Christ, who are looking at these things through not only technology, but with a pragmatic eye, would say, hey, look, we can kill them without any pain. So, you know, it's not like we have to hang them from the bridge or something. You know, I mean, and, and so there's an easy way to justify this stuff and just to say, well, you know, look, this is merciful. You know, we're actually doing this person a big favor by doing this. And that's what she would have wanted. And she wouldn't have wanted to go on like that. And, you know, I hear this all the time. Um, having been a pastor and working in a funeral home, I got double-barreled with this stuff all the time because I was around a lot of death. And being a paramedic for many years, I was around a lot of death. Um, and therefore, again, a fundamental distinction needs to be made between life-taking and death-permitting. So that is one of the issues. Okay, let's talk a moment about, and I, how are we doing on time, Jeremy? Good? Ten minutes, good. Okay, involuntary active euthanasia. All right, let's talk about involuntary active euthanasia. Now, here, involuntary euthanasia requires a second party who makes decisions about whether active measures should be taken to end a life. You know, um, 
This is a scary thing to me, too. Not too long ago, I remember my mom insisted that Gail and I go with her to an attorney because she wanted to rewrite her will. And she had a will, but she had it in her mind that it wasn't current enough, and so it really was. But, you know, to put her at ease, we said, okay, fine. So we went and saw an attorney, and we sat down to write her will. And uh, one of the things, she, you know, that the attorney said was that, um, you know, who... Um, who is going to make decisions if your mother is not of sound mind? Now, you would think that's a pretty straightforward question, but it really made me stop in my tracks because I thought, how do we determine if she's really of sound mind? You know, and, and I'm making a decision at some point to say, you're no longer capable of making a decision, so I need to make one. Now, I don't think that in and of itself is wrong. Um, if my mother had written up a will and either through, say, Alzheimer's or dementia or something, she was incapable of, you know, intelligently, you know, thinking through it. I think that I would have no trouble wanting to exercise my right to make sure that her wishes, when she was of sound mind, would be executed. On the other hand, you know, I could see how easily that goes into someday that attorney asking me, and so, you know, who's going to decide when you want her to die, you know, and, and, you know, there's a lot of responsibility there, and uh, involuntary euthanasia, again, requires a second party, since Roe versus Wade, remember, which led to legalized abortion, the progression to devalue life was inevitable, abortion slides into infanticide, and eventually into euthanasia, and again, as soon as abortion became legal, listen, euthanasia wasn't far behind, I mean, when you determine that you can take a life, um, whether it be in the womb or on the other end of it, it it's inevitable that those two are going to go together because the, the philosophy is the same. Um, and that is, is that life is devalued. Um, you, you can't get around that. In recent years, doctors have allowed a number of baby does to die either by failing to perform life-saving operations or else by not feeding the infants. So here again, where care could be given to save a life, to prolong a life, um, care was not given. Um, and those babies would die. There is great fear that our society will conform to a literal quality of life standard for infants and the elderly. And this is, I think, the kind of the summation of what we're talking about here. You know, eventually you're going to see legislation <clears throat> talking about the quality of life. And we're going to set boundaries and we're going to set standards on what qual we're going to determine what quality of life is. Jack, Do you remember? Yes, I'm sorry, like Pete. It stems from evolution and survival of the Yeah, it does. It sounds like it's going back to that. Absolutely, yeah. It, it's You're not fit. Right. If you don't fit the criteria of being productive, of being a certain level of health, of being a certain level of mind, um, you're just a drain on society and we need to get rid of you. <clears throat> yes. I was just saying, on top of that, it, the, the other side of the second part to that is individually and as a society, our God is comfort now. So it's it's not about like everything. It's very selfish in nature. Yeah. So sure. they go hand in hand. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, uh, you remember the former uh, Surgeon General C. Everett Koop when he was the Surgeon General. Uh, he said this. He said, nothing surprises me anymore. My great concern is that there will be 10,000 grandma does for every baby doe. 
And, you know, I think, honestly, that we're kind of heading in that direction. Now, I don't have this in your notes, but I want to give you a, a section that I've entitled Lessons from Holland, because Holland is a country that is really in the forefront of euthanasia. The, you know, just like the modern Reformation movement was birthed by Calvin, um, or Martin Luther, rather, I'm sorry, uh, so euthanasia was birthed by Holland, the Netherlands. And uh, we have to ask about this controversy, about whether euthanasia is justified. Um, and their argument is this, after all, won't it give people more personal freedom and alleviate unnecessary pain and suffering? I think one needs only to look at Holland to see that the fears about euthanasia are more than justified. Holland essentially legalized PAS, which is physician-assisted suicide, in 1973, and they did it by two court decisions. Uh, and while not officially legalizing it, the court said that if certain guidelines were followed, doctors would not be prosecuted for being involved with voluntary euthanasia. In other words, if they met the guidelines, there would be no criminal activity. <clears throat> so how's it going? Dr. Raymond Bolin, writing for Probe Ministries, stated that by legalizing physician-assisted suicide, Holland has now become a runaway death culture. That's what they're calling it, a runaway death culture. And the problem is, is that the court's regulations are not enforceable. And see, that's the problem. You, you can't enforce them. It's, it's like trying to hold on to air. Um, as a result, the government of the Netherlands reported that only 41% of doctors obeyed the rules and 27% admitted to performing involuntary euthanasia, that is, terminating a patient's life without their consent. Now, that's staggering when you think about it. 6% of all deaths in Holland were the direct result of involuntary euthanasia. Now, you just think about that, 6%. People were killed without their permission. Um, there was a 26-year-old ballerina who came to a Holland physician with arthritis in her toes and asked to be euthanized. And since she could no longer pursue her career as a dancer, she said she was depressed and no longer wished to live, and the doctor carried out euthanasia because she had arthritis in her feet. True story. When later questioned, he justified it by saying, one doesn't enjoy such things, but it was her choice. Tough, you know. Yeah, and there are many other examples of this. Um, Oh, yeah, he had the freedom to say no, but he agreed that, you know, it's her choice. So it, so if she has arthritis in her feet and she can't be a ballerina anymore, uh, let's, yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly right. So, you know, again, devaluing life or deciding. Um, other examples exist. Physicians in Holland openly admit to having performed euthanasia because they thought a family had suffered too much. They were tired of taking care of the patient. One doctor even got mad at a patient and chose to end his life against his will. And that's, see, that's the problem, is that there's really no way to enforce this. Um, it, it's a you can set laws and, and regulations, but this is such a personal thing. And, you know, by the time any judicial action was taken on an individual patient, 
it would take, you know how the judicial process works. <clears throat> so what's going to happen is what happens in Holland. It's just basically going to be in the moment what a doctor decides, and this is what's going to happen. <clears throat> Makes us not want to go to the hospital anymore, doesn't it? <laughs> is there, uh, what's the opposite of immigration? Whatever that word I'm is. sorry, the opposite of what? The, the opposite of immigration. Uh, I wonder what whatever okay, immigration that would be. Exportation, like. I don't know. People leaving the country, I wonder what that's like. Immigrate and emigrate. Yeah, emigrate, yeah. Is it emigrate? Yeah. Emigrate. I guess that's the word. I wonder how people are leaving Holland. Yeah. Well, I sure wouldn't want to be in the hospital there. I'll tell you that much. You know, that could be really hazardous to your health. And this was, uh, these studies are not real current, so it's worse. You know, I mean, it's, uh, it hasn't gone away. Okay, um, where are we at time-wise here? Are we about 10 after? Okay, I'm going to stop here because the next uh, area that we're going to get into is actually physician-assisted suicide, and I want to stop there. And then when we finish that, we're going to get into um, we're going to get into euthanasia in the Bible. We're going to talk about you know now how do we deal with this given the facts. But I think it's important for us to talk about this to understand there's more to this than just a, a, a simple you know um, right to die or people that want to die. So, all right, um, let's see if I can get this off. Okay, let's.